0: You're listening to TIP.
1: It's always, I see this saying a lot. It's like, oh, you have a client, you say, oh, here's a $100 bill. And they're like, you know, they get nitpicky on it. Well, I only did this. You know, can I get it for $90? But then you send someone that has a higher net worth, you know, bill for $100,000. They don't even say anything, they just pay it.
2: In this week's episode, I talk with Dante Belmonte about transitioning from small real estate deals like single family properties and duplexes to syndicating apartment buildings. Dante is a seasoned real estate investor and a top-performing real estate agent in central New York. As an agent, Dante is focused on helping investors grow their portfolio of income-producing properties. He is the host of the Make Money, Make Sense in Real Estate podcast. Dante has spent his most recent years acquiring and rehabbing small multifamily buildings in New York and has been involved in more than 40 multifamily transactions, Dante also hosts monthly real estate classes, teaching other investors the best strategies for investing in real estate, whether that is a passive or more active role. In his latest venture, as managing partner of Victory Capital Group, LLC, he's dedicated to working with qualified, passive investors to buy apartment buildings. In Dante's spare time, you can find him spending time with his beautiful wife, Madeline, and their daughter, Margot, playing soccer in his men's league, enjoying fellowship with friends, or volunteering in numerous programs with his local church. This episode is very timely for me personally, as I'm now starting to syndicate some deals and buy 10 to 50 unit apartment buildings by trading out of some of my smaller deals. I've personally learned a lot from this episode that I'm applying to what I'm doing, and I hope you guys can too. Let's dive right in.
0: You're listening to Real Estate Investing by The Investor's Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interview successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey.
2: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I welcome in Dante Belmonte. Dante, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Robert, how are we doing? Thank you so much for uh, having me on the show. I really look forward to chatting with you today, hopefully adding some value to your audience. So very, very excited.
2: We're going to dive right into it. And back in February, you tweeted that one real estate deal can change someone's life.
1: Why do you believe this to be true? And how can one deal change someone's life? I believe this to be true because it changed my life. One real estate deal completely changed the trajectory of... Where my career headed and where my life headed. And so you could attest that to the first deal, for example, that first real estate deal that I did that was buying a duplex with an FHA loan and just getting really creative with it, that completely changed where my life was heading. So, you know, before I didn't really have any direction, was going to go to school and just kind of figure it out as I go. But buying that first duplex gave me that confidence to continue to buy property. And now we have over 10 million of assets under management. And that's completely changed where my life has gone. And so I think that rule applies for anyone that is doing real estate, that one deal can really change the trajectory of where they're going, the outlook they have, their financial situation. And uh, definitely happy to talk a little bit more about that today of how that worked for me.
2: Yeah. Brandon Turner from bigger pockets commonly says that one deal isn't going to make you rich, but he knows very few people who have ever done just one real estate deal. Basically, once you do one right. deal, you've done yep. two, you do three, four, five, so on and so forth. And so it's not really even so much that first deal, but it's what it leads up to.
1: Exactly. Like law of the first deal is another way they say it, or like the snowball effect. You start with that first one, it's a little bit smaller, starts rolling downhill, gaining momentum, getting bigger. And uh, it's all, it goes from there.
2: You mentioned on Twitter and in your bio that your firm is a private equity firm. How is that structure different than some of the other structures real estate firms use that also buy apartment buildings?
1: We say we're private equity because we get to uh, pick and choose who we bring in as equity partners. It's not public, it's not open, we don't advertise, and we don't just accept anyone that we want to. A lot of private equity firms, so to speak, or PE firms, they're really not private in the sense they're public, they're open, their REITs or their projects they have, they openly advertise for. For us, it is usually friends and family and referrals that we take in or people that we network with that we allow to participate in our multifamily deals. So like our syndications, for example. So the private aspect of that is we get to pick and choose who we want to participate with or want to participate with us in our deals and partner with us. And we've turned down many individuals. We've even had people wire in hundreds of thousands of dollars that we've actually wired back to them just because we didn't think the relationship was a good fit. Because it's not like a one-off, you do a quick deal and you're done. Uh, these individuals are partnered with us on deals for a long period of time. And we have to communicate with them. They have to understand how we have control and how we execute on the business plan. And if we just don't see that it's a good fit for them and ourself, uh, we, you know we can turn those individuals away.
2: What were the items that made them not a good fit? What were some of the big red flags or just things that you didn't feel great about?
1: First one being their financial goals. If their goals didn't align with our goals of what they wanted their capital to do for them, maybe if they uh, were a little too conservative, or maybe they were a little bit too aggressive on what they wanted for returns, we just didn't feel that was comfortable as we don't want... We didn't think we could perform for what they were looking for. Second is the amount of capital. So if someone said, Hey, I have $100,000 or $200,000 I want to invest with you guys, and it's their last $100,000 or $200,000 We don't want to take that. We don't want to take their last dimes, their savings account. We want play money. We want money that they're looking to grow over the long term and something where they will not need access to it tomorrow, where they call us up and say, Hey, I need that $200,000 back. This is an illiquid investment. So it's not readily available for the investor to take. And uh, second off, just attitude as well. So if it's someone that's really nitpicky, constantly wants updates on a weekly basis or something of that nature, we really don't think that's a good fit. We currently, on all of our projects that investors are invested in, we give them a very quick and easy one-page summary of how the property's performing, where the NOI is at, and what's been going on over the last month. Quarterly, we do videos to our investors. So we'll actually... My partner and I will sit down on a Zoom call, we'll record about a two-minute video that's a little bit more in-depth, and then we actually send out financials to the investors. And that's always been more than enough. We've actually never had an investor reach out to us and say, hey, what's going on with the property? Because our updates are pretty thorough in the aspect that the investor knows what's going on. And that's all the information they really need.
2: From that vein, do you only work with accredited
1: investors? Uh, We don't. So we work with uh, sophisticated and accredited investors. So sophisticated or non-accredited and accredited investors. I'd say 90% of our investor pool is accredited. But we still, again, have that private mentality where we have the option to accept or deny. Even though we have all those accredited investors, we could open it up publicly. It's not something that we've uh, taken down at this time.
2: Do you find that the non accredited investors are a
1: little bit more difficult to deal with or manage? Most definitely because they're not accredited, their net worth isn't there, their income isn't there. It's always, I see this saying a lot. It's like, oh, you have a client, you say, oh, here's a $100 bill. And they're like, you know, they get nitpicky on it. Well, I only did this, you know, can I get it for $90? But then you send someone that has a higher net worth, you know, bill for $100,000. They don't even say anything, they just pay it. They're typically a little bit easier in that uh, sense, you know, where a non-accredited investor may complain about a wire fee or something where everyone else doesn't. They can be so-so, but again, that's where we get picky. How did
2: you start the private equity firm? You were just 24 years old, and where did you get your initial capital for it?
1: I actually started the firm when I was 22 with my partner, DJ. And really, we just educated ourselves a lot. And we actually started with all in-house capital. So all the legal work, we paid for personally, all the documentation, everything that we started with was in-house capital that DJ and I had ourselves. And also on each project, we don't get reimbursed for those projects until they actually close. We have hundreds of thousands of dollars of personal capital invested in these deals, whether that's in the form of deposits, legal costs, lender deposits, whatever that is, inspections, due diligence, we all pay that out of pocket between my partner and I. And then we get reimbursed from that at closings. It was definitely an uphill battle at first starting out so young, but it's certainly paying off now.
2: What were those legal costs up front? And how do you actually structure the private equity firm?
1: It's essentially syndicating. It is. So we're following the syndication business model and refer to it as private equity it varies by deal on costs and how much we're doing. So it could be anywhere from you know, 15000 to $30,000. It's really more of the deposits that are the more legal cost side of things. But there's a lot of holding costs up front and uh, startup costs that we cover. But we, like I said, the SEC attorney fees to actually start the syndication, structure all the new entities, not as bad as most people think. Like people think private equity syndications and it sounds expensive, but it's not really that bad. It's a few tens of thousands of dollars. The Reg A private equity funds that you could do are definitely more expensive. It gets into the six digits as far as uh, setup costs go.
2: And so do you have different funds essentially or syndications for each deal? And then those syndications or those funds are just owned by the larger or umbrella private equity firm. Is that how it's structured?
1: Yeah. So we kind of have like a, a holding company, Victory Capital Group, that has a certain percentage of ownership in each of the deals. But then each deal itself has its own entity, its own syndication structure that we set up. And then the investors buy not shares, but what's referred to as units of the ownership entity. So the borrowing entity, we have org charts that show who has what ownership, what percentage, who has the insurance, who's taking on the loan, who has the property ownership, who uh, is overseeing the management of the project and gets the management fees versus the split of cash flow. It does get a little confusing, but that's why we have you know, charts and data that we can look at to understand uh, all the. Do you get
2: the individual fund set up? Let's say you know like right now you're going to search for a property and you don't have one mm-hmm. in mind yet. You don't have anything under contract. You don't even have a property picked out, but you just know you're going on a search. Do you get that entity set up ahead of time so that when you do find a deal, you're ready to go? Or do you find the deal first and then get that set up afterwards?
1: We typically find the deal first, then get it set up. I don't want anyone to get confused. We don't do funds. We do uh, what's called, um, I'm forgetting the actual legal term of it, but it's a specific entity. So, a single entity where the entity is created just for that project. Once we go ahead and put something under contract, it does go under contract under the holding company. So, you can kind of see here, you know, Victory Capital Group and that monopoly thing there, my wife got me. We put all the properties under contract on that entity. And then what we simply do is our last building that we bought was called the Abbey Apartments. So we'll make an entity called VCG Abbey Investments. And that way we can identify its Victory Capital Group. And it's the Abbey and it's the investment, which is the holding company and the borrowing entity for that asset. And we just assign the contract to that entity once it gets created. Because depending on the state we're in, that's where the borrowing entity is going to be. And then of course, we always make a new entity for each deal that we go through.
2: Yeah, that was helpful because I was wondering, you don't have time to get that new entity set up before you go under contract. If, if you go no, you, yeah, you're going to lose the deal. Yeah, okay, you're going to lose the deal. Exactly.
1: And like we don't want to go through all the due diligence and create an entity and take on all the costs for nothing. So that way, we put it under that victory capital group, and then we assign it once we're a little bit down the road. So like... We're uh, about to close on the 5th, an apartment complex, and we won't assign that entity until probably today. Actually, I'm I'm watching the legal emails fly through right now. We're getting assigned at this late in the game because we know everything's all set, everything's taken care of. All the documents, the operating agreement, the subscription agreement, the PPM are all taken care of and they're in the entity names. Definitely gets a little confusing, but that's the importance of having like a great team behind you, having a really good attorney, having a really good SEC attorney, and also having a great partner as well, because my partner does work directly with the attorneys. I don't do that as much.
2: How many attorneys do you have? Two?
1: So we have a real estate attorney, and then we have a securities attorney. Within each of those teams, there's also other attorneys. So you know, we have two attorneys on the real estate side of things. We have three attorneys on the security side of things it can get expensive, but it's to protect us and our investors and make sure that we're doing things properly.
2: What size deal do you typically see that makes it worthwhile to take on those costs? Does it need to be more than... I mean, I'm sure it varies depending on location, given property in in one area might be 50 (coughs) units and it could be the cost of 10 units in another place. But just generally speaking, like what maybe cost or size property, does it start to make sense to use this structure that you're using just from a cost perspective?
1: Yeah. no. I'll give you an example and answer that question at the same time. We bought a property last month that was 32 units for $2 million. And that's probably the cutoff. $2 million and higher will work. And so we had this 32-unit project. We syndicated it. We took on all those legal costs. The numbers made sense. And a broker that we bought a deal from six months ago brought us the property directly next door that was only 16 units. I say next door, but it's kind of like you go out the street around, there's some trees dividing it. And it was 16 units and the price was roughly like 1.1 million. And we just said, I, you know, we appreciate the opportunity, but it's not going to work because the business model is too expensive to take on and set up for such a small purchase cost. One, 16 units is really hard to manage because it's smaller. The economies of scale aren't really there. And then being under two million, the purchase price just is too small to take on those costs. You know, if you divide it on a per unit basis or whatever you you need that to be. And also, we can't get too attractive loans on those size assets as well. Our smallest asset we own right now, which we do plan to exit pretty soon, is twenty four units, and that was about a two point five million dollar acquisition. And the legal cost made sense there. The loan type made sense there. But again, anything under two million dollars doesn't really work. We're not really looking at anything under $4 million right now, just because we're continuing to trade up in asset size, acquisition project size. And also that gives us more room for our investors because each of our acquisitions, we've had to turn away investors that wanted to invest with us just because there wasn't enough slices of pie. There wasn't enough room for each investor.
2: Prior to the show, you had mentioned to me that you were the lead GP on, on three multifamily syndications since you mentioned that you're the lead gp i'm curious if you have other co gps and if you do why and what is the structure with them
1: if you go on linkedin or you go on instagram or facebook you'll see a bunch of people that are trying to or are syndicating and they're really co gps so they'll be like oh my goodness they're taking down this 300 unit complex and they're really not they're getting a small slice of the pie to bring in 500,000 or a million dollars of capital which one that's not allowed. That's against SEC rules is to just raise capital. You do have to have another role in the business, whether that's asset management or you know something of that nature. But I'm lead GP as in, I find the deal, I underwrite the deal, I put up the due diligence money, I put up the deposits, I do the asset management, I hire all the contractors, all the vendors on the property management. Like I said, put up the deposit and also sign on the loan. I control everything of you know my partner and I, I should say we control every aspect of the property. We are the owners, we are the majority owners as well. But we'll have typically on all of our deals, we have one gentleman that's on it, and he takes anywhere from a ten to twenty percent of the GP PI ownership, and that's because he signs on our loans. The reason being is because we don't have the full experience yet. So a lot of these loans, like agency loans, going to directly to Fannie and Freddie. They want to see five plus years of experience with multifamily loans. And being that, you know, I'm only 24, I've been doing this for a little less than two years, I don't have that experience piece yet. So we bring that individual on and he essentially partners with us by signing on our loans for us. We still sign on the loans to gain that experience piece, but he has it and he gets that green check mark from the lender. So again, when we say lead GP, we're the decision makers, we own a majority of the asset on the GP side. We don't have anyone coming in just to raise capital or, or do anything silly like that. We take on the full project.
2: And sometimes they call that like an experienced partner or like a net worth partner, because sometimes these loan requirements yeah, but, will have a net worth requirement. Sometimes you got to bring somebody in that has a little bit more either liquidity <coughs> or just net worth or something along those lines to be on the loan with you. How did you find him to bring in?
1: We refer to him as a key principle. All, everything you just said is the same sayings, it's just different ways. We did what we, I call strategic lending. So, this was a very well known syndicator in the North Carolina market. He's been doing it for about a decade. He's been involved in over 3,000 units of transactions. And we said, let's find someone that is in the markets we're in that we can build a good relationship with, that we feel comfortable with, that can sign on our loans. But how are we going to do that? Because these people always have people approaching them, asking them to partner on deals. You know, will you raise capital? Will you sign on the loan? We decided to give to this individual. So we said, Hey, so-and-so, we see you have projects going on. We're going to lend you money on those projects. We're going to take an LP position. We're going to be one of your investors. And we're going to continue to fund your deals that way. And uh, in exchange, we'd like you to come sign on our loans. So this is a win-win-win for everyone because we're investing in great cash flowing multifamily assets. This investor or this operator or sponsor is getting private capital for his deals that he needs. So he's able to raise the capital to do his deals. And then on the back end, he's able to sign on our loans. So we're able to execute on these projects, give other investors great opportunities, make great opportunities for ourselves. And at the same time, he's building his balance sheet. He's building his net worth. He's also gaining a small percentage of ownership of these other projects as well. There's no downside for any of us. It's all upside, no matter which way you look at it. And of course, this individual would like it. He reviews our underwriting. He likes our underwriting. He likes the way we do things. He likes the properties we find. He's more than comfortable to sign on the loans. And again, he's gaining that net worth that uh, his balance sheet is increasing. He's getting a percentage of ownership. And that's how we found that individual is what I call strategic lending. So lending into GPs that we want to work with on our projects. Are those loans non-recourse? Everything we do is non-recourse. Everything that sponsor does is non-recourse. It's not that we ever think we're going to default on our loans, because we don't plan to, we don't think going to, and we'll do everything in our power not to. But it's the fact that we're in a very odd and ever-changing economic environment, and if something out of our control and everyone's control has uh, happened, we want to be secure in that aspect. You know, we had opportunity to take on a great bank loan on our recent project, but it was full recourse, and we weren't comfortable with that, and we took kind of a little bit of a lesser loan, a little more expensive debt product because it was non-recourse. And uh, I, I don't think we'll ever sign on recourse. It would have to be a, a very unique project, unique debt type that is super safe and risk averse. So at this time, it's all non-recourse debt. And so for those listeners that are wondering you know, recourse versus non-recourse, just real quick, recourse essentially is when you buy a house, it's recourse debt. If you default on the loan, they're going to take the house from you and then they're going to come after you, after your personal assets to satisfy what's left on that mortgage principal balance. Non-recourse is it's just the property is collateral. So if we have a $5 million property and a $4 million loan on it, and we default and they sell it and they only get three and a half million, that other half a million that the loan principal balance is, they can't really come after us for it. They have to just kind of walk away and cut their losses. But there's a thing called bad boy carve-outs, where if you actually you know, lie on any of your applications or give faulty information, or there's a certain types of defaults, that bad boy carve-out will actually make the uh, loan go from non-recourse to full or partial recourse. And so we're very careful in that aspect as well. And it might be a little more information than you're looking for.
2: I'm guessing your key principle probably wouldn't do it if the debt was recourse,
1: right? Yep, he wouldn't do it. He doesn't do any recourse and uh, he
3: won't sign in any recourse debt either. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
0: The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV. Like an adventure ready RAV4, available with all wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails and with plenty of passenger and cargo space. Plus, available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both Rob 4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Robs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go
3: places. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes, and with as little as $10, by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement.
2: Where are you finding the non-recourse debt? Kind of, You just mentioned that you had a, a good opportunity for a recourse loan, but you didn't really want to go that route. So you ended up going non-recourse. Walk us through who is the recourse potentially with versus who were you able to find the non-recourse
1: with? Non-recourse is typically going to be uh, Fannie financing, which is agency. So that's going directly to you know the government agencies. Those are always going to be non-recourse. Bridge debt or debt funds is typically going to be non-recourse we're getting into the recourse. is going to be more of like credit unions and banks. So smaller uh, lending partners, essentially. We have mortgage brokers we work with. So we pay them a little extra to go out and find us a really good debt deal. So like our first deal, we did agency financing with that was full non-recourse. Our second two deals, we uh, went and found a broker. And once you start doing deals, these brokers will find you. You you post on social media and LinkedIn, they'll DM you and say, Hey, I've got some great opportunities for you. And there was one individual that added a lot of value to us. We felt like she was a hard worker and she had good relationships. And so we used her as our loan broker. And she would essentially, we'd say, hey, here's this deal we have. Here is the numbers. Here's the rent roll. Here's the T12, the purchase price, the market, yada, yada, yada. Please go find us a a loan that would fit this business plan and make these returns happen. And and she'll go and do that. And typically, they're all going to be non-recourse when you're looking at bridge debt, which is what we asked her to go out and find she did bring us a bank option to compare. And that was recourse. So it's not like we're going out finding these individual lenders. Essentially, our broker will send us a PDF sheet that has uh, five different columns. And the columns won't have the bank's names on them. And that's uh, for that broker has spent a lot of time building relationships with those banks, with those lenders, with those debt funds. And therefore, you know, she doesn't want to give up that information for free. So she'll just say, okay, here are all the terms. She'll show us everything in each column. You know, here's the rate, here's the prepayment, here's the LTV, the debt service coverage ratio you have to be at, but you won't see the, you know, the bank names in there. And that's fine. We respect that. And this is how you build relationships. And it's that trust factor as well. What does she charge you to do that? Typically, it's 1% of the loan amount. So that whatever the principal balance is, the loan amount, it's one percent, and that goes to her, and then you know, it gets split up with her actual mortgage brokerage that she's a part of. And we're, we're always willing to pay that fee because she's always going to bat for us. We had an appraisal issue on our last deal. She went to bat for us, and we actually got that uh, issue fixed. So it's well worth the one percent. Uh, you're going to make up for it in terms and rate on the long run. Upfront, it may look like it's super expensive, and you're like, "Oh, one percent of three million dollars, she's getting 30,000 dollars at closing, and we're giving her that well. You're going to save over thirty thousand dollars over the life of this loan because you have a lower interest rate, or you have a lower prepayment penalty, or maybe you're getting some higher leverage that you can get some more cash flow with. So it's very worth paying that one percent, which one percent is very typical.
2: Is that coming out of your pocket for cash, or is that something that could come out of the loan?
1: That's going to come out of our pocket at cash as like an additional closing cost. So it's not, it doesn't get ballooned into the loan or anything like that. So we, you know, we have a, a breakdown of our closing costs one of those line item is a uh, mortgage broker fee. And we always just auto-populate like that as 1% of whatever the, the principal balance is we think we're going to take on for the loan.
2: As far as I know, you can't go, and I could be wrong, but you can't go directly to Freddie or Fannie to get that agency debt. So is it just a, a local bank or credit union that is,
1: is kind of being the intermediary for them? Is that how that works? I'm not sure if you can or cannot go direct to Freddie and Fannie. I know there's what's called direct lenders to Freddie and Fannie, where they directly speak to Freddie and Fannie, where a lot of times you'll get a mortgage broker that talks to a lender that talks to Freddie and Fannie, but now you're lining up too many people. We go out there and find direct to uh, agency lenders. They're not really going to be banks, although banks can do them. It's not going to be very traditional. We'll just go around and you know, start to talk to other operators in the market and say, Hey, who are some lenders that you've worked with? That can do agency direct. And, you know, I keep a spreadsheet of all the lenders I talk to, and, and 30 of them on there can do agency loans, but maybe only 10 of them are agency direct and don't charge that 1% on top. So the lenders will charge 1%, but if you go to a mortgage broker, they're going to charge 1%, then there's going to be another 1% just to get in. It doesn't really make sense at that point.
2: Is there a size and scale that you have to be at in order to get this non recourse debt?
1: Yes, you have to be. I believe the loan amount has to be between two million to seven million. The loan amount, not the purchase price. The loan amount has to be between two million to seven million to get what's called an SBL or small balance loan for Freddie or Fannie. So that's the first hurdle. And then seven million and higher, there's really no cap on that. You're, you know, you'll never hit it. As to get those agency loans for Freddie and Fannie, anything below two million is just too small for them to look at and the cost to take on the loan doesn't really make sense. That's why I kind of said earlier when you asked the question, you know, where do these syndications not really work? And it's twofold under 2 million because it's tough to take on the legal costs and it's tough to get a loan on those size assets. So you definitely want to be 2 million and higher to get a loan. Will they go a little bit lower? Yes, but it just depends it's very deal specific.
2: If you're lower than 2 million, you probably should assume that you're going to have to go through like a local bank or credit union. You're probably going to have to use recourse debt. Is that safe to assume?
1: Yes. Very safe to assume. Bridge debt, you'll never get there. Bridge debt is usually 5 million and 10 million and higher. You can get bridge debt on. If you're getting bridge debt 5 million and lower, it gets very expensive. Again, those fees cost a lot more. The interest rate might be higher because there's more risk to the debt lender. But yeah, under 2000000 million, you're definitely getting bank financing or credit union financing where it's full recourse. When I was buying duplexes through an LLC and I was getting commercial uh, mortgages through credit unions, they were all full recourse and they didn't even offer non-recourse no matter what dollar amount you were at. For
2: anyone that's not familiar with bridge debt, can you explain quickly what that is?
1: Bridge debt is exactly what it sounds like. It's to bridge the project to get from acquisition to your perm debt or permanent debt. We take bridge debt onto some of our projects because we know it's a short, it's meant for short term financing. It's not meant for permanent financing. It's going to be more expensive and they don't lend on debt service coverage ratio. They lend on more of what's called a debt yield and projections. So they'll say, okay, you're buying this property and I'll give you a, you know a real world example of an asset that we purchased bridge debt with. You're buying this property at $2 million. It doesn't cash flow to make sense to take on an agency loan, but we're going to give you this bridge debt that is interest only. So that means the payments are going to be lower. There's not really a prepayment penalty on it, and it's only for a two or three year term. You have options to extend, but they're a little expensive, but it's meant to be short term where you can turn this project around. For example, this project was $2 million. The rents were 500 for one bedroom, 600 for two bedrooms, well below where market needed to be. And that's why it didn't work for agency debt. We take that bridge debt, we put it in place, we have those lower debt payments upfront because it's interest only. They're also lending us a percentage, sometimes 75 to 100% of our rehab costs. So we're going to go in, we're going to borrow that money from them, rehab the units, rehab the exterior, once the rents are higher, the property's in much better shape, and we can show a really strong T12 or P&L or the income and expenses are really strong, then we're going to go and say, okay, we're going to go to one of these agency guys, and we're going to refinance out of that bridge debt into the perm debt or the agency debt, which is more long-term for cash flow. Again, bridge debt is not meant for permanent. It's more of a a short-term lending option to get you in the project Get the business plan in place and get to that permanent state where you can uh, cash flow the asset.
2: Are you getting fixed rate on your bridge debt right now?
1: Yes, that's a big question right now. Is a lot of people are seeing floating debt or uh, floating interest rates because interest rates are changing so fast right now. You can get a rate cap on those, but they're very expensive. You know, we can get five and a half percent interest rate on bridge debt. But it changes every month and we can buy a cap to get it to 7% for $100,000. That's a super expensive cap. And there's a lot of uncertainty there when your mortgage interest rate changes every single month. So we're under the belief of taking on fixed rate debt because it's predictable, it's safe, a little more expensive maybe you know over the long run if interest rates adjust, but we don't really care because we know what our interest rate is going to be. So like. On this last deal, we just did $4 million deal. It's under that $5 million threshold. So it's going to get a little bit more expensive on the interest rate side. So 6.99%. That's fine. We were willing to take on that 6.99% fixed rate debt because it was fixed for two years. And then we had two more options of one-year options to extend. So we could have kept that fixed rate for four years, whereas floating was maybe 5.99% upfront, You're also paying $120,000 up front to cap that out at whatever percent that is, and there's just a lot of uncertainty. And sometimes they don't even allow you to buy caps, and that's just you know shooting yourself in the foot because that interest rate can just keep rising over time as inflation does, and you know whatever is going to happen in the economy here, and that's a lot of uncertainty, and that scares us. So we definitely take on only fixed rate debt at this time. Could that change in the future? Very well could, but not at this time.
2: I recently was at a conference, I, was, I spoke at a conference, Multifamily Investor Nation Conference in, in Charlotte. And there was a panel of us, we were all talking about raising capital in the market. And one of the individuals on stage, very, very well known in the multifamily syndication space, and he owns a bridge debt lending company and he's actually selling it. But besides the point, he said he's really worried about bridge debt right now. He's really scared. He's not taking it on with any of his projects a lot of people actually echoed that kind of same sentiment is that they're really worried about using bridge debt. So I'm curious, are you worried about bridge debt right now? I know you just said you took it on, but I'm curious, are you worried about it? And if you are, is it on the back end because you're not sure if you'll be able to refinance out?
1: Well, that's just it. You said it. So being able to refinance out. The people that are going to get slaughtered on bridge debt are the people in the last two to three years who have said, okay, the market's strong, interest rates are 3.5% on agency financing. Let's take this bridge debt. We'll go into the project. We'll really leverage ourselves up so we don't have to use that much capital. And on the back end, they're assuming they're going to refinance this thing at 3, three and a half, four 4%. And they're going to get full uh, loan-to-value coverage on their deal. And that's not the case. Those people who have no choice but to sell or refinance when the bridge debt is up, they're going to be left holding a bag because once the bridge debt is up, the time is up they're not going to keep extending you after those extensions. And if you think, "Oh, cap rates are still 3 or 4%, we're going to exit at that price or we're going to refinance at that price based on that valuation." That's not the case. You know, you're going to be at 5 and 6% on cap rate. When we're looking at our bridge debt and we look to refinance, we're looking at multiple exit strategies. So we say for years 1 through 4, we have three exit strategies. We can keep the bridge debt in place, which has a fixed interest rate, so we know where we're going to be at we can refinance the debt. So we don't, we're not forced to exit. We can look to refinance within those four years. So if year two doesn't look good for refinance, we'll reevaluate year three. If year three, evaluate year four. And then the third exit option, which we have at any time is to sell the asset. And so when we're making these refinance and sell assumptions, we're making them that the market's going to get worse, that things aren't going to look as good or as favorable. When we go to refinance, we think we're going to be getting a six or seven percent interest rate, we're only going to get 65 or 70 percent loan to value, and the cap rate's going to be six, six and a half percent. Right now, cap rates in North Carolina, as I'm sure you're aware, and many investors that are investing in that area in multifamily, cap rates are still in the fours and the fives. So we're predicting that when we go to refinance this asset, that it's going to continue to uptick in the cap rate, which brings the value of the property down. We have a triple buffer area there. We think cap rates are going to be high. We think interest rates are going to be high. And we think our loan to value on the refinance is going to be a little bit lower. So if you know, one of those things are better than what we're predicting, we're already in a better position. And then exiting. For example, we're buying this deal at a 5% cap rate. We assume that we're going to exit this deal at a 6.2% cap rate. So again, cap rate and price, they're inverse of each other. So if price goes up, that means the cap rate's coming down, or really because the cap rate's coming down, the price is going up. Or if the cap rate is extending and it's going up, the price of the asset is going to go down. So we're always predicting that our cap rate's going to go up, the market cap rate's going to go up, it's not going to be as favorable. And if the numbers still work with that cap rate going up, and maybe cap rates do th- stay the same, then we're going to beat our projections like crazy, and the project's going to go really well. We're super picky. We're super risk averse. You know, We'll look at hundreds of the deals before we do one. And that's fine. you know. I tell brokers, send me all the deals you have. I'm super picky, especially in an economic time like right now. And that's okay. We're very comfortable. We know we have good deals when our first deal that we... Or excuse me, our deal we bought six months ago, we're already looking to sell right now and for 32% higher than we purchased it for. Our deal we closed on a month and a half ago, we had offers at closing a million dollars more than we purchased it for. So we bought right there. A deal that we're closing on right now that we bought off market, comps literally the next block over, 10 years older, are selling for $35,000 more a door than we're purchasing for. So we're only doing deals if we're really comfortable on the acquisition side of things.
2: Does your bridge debt have a prepayment penalty typically?
1: Not after 12 months. So all of our bridge debt doesn't have a prepayment after 12 months. Reality is you're not going to sell the property after 12 months. That one that we're selling in six months, it's agency debt. They're assuming the debt. So, therefore, we have no prepayment penalty. But all of our other projects, we plan to hold them for years so we can uh, capitalize on long term capital gains. And no prepayment penalty after 12 months just makes it a lot easier. Where if we want to, again, exit, refinance, we can without having a cost to it, or we can just hold that bridge debt in place.
2: Are you buying all of your properties off market?
1: I don't want to say all of them. The one we closed on a month and a half ago, that one was on market, but it was with a very small broker. And he wasn't nearly as big as the Cushman and Wakefield, the capstones of the industry. He was just there's three guys that worked at this brokerage, really two. If you probably haven't heard of them. They said the name. And so they had the property on their website, but not that many people go to their website. They don't get that much traction. And so that was on market. We put it under contract the day it came on market for two hundred thousand less than listing.
2: Was that not listed, like on LoopNet or anywhere else?
1: Correct. Yes, all the brokers we work with, with exception of one, I'll say two, they don't list their properties on LoopNet. So it's really when we say on market, it means it's on their broker website. If the property is not on the broker website and it makes it to like the short list of twenty investors, that's like a semi-off market if it's truly off market and like the broker just got it today just got approval from the seller that they can sell this property for him today and they sent it directly to us that's a true off market deal and our last one was off market because it only made it to two people we were the one that won it one before that was a full on market because it made it to the broker's website and then the one before that we can say it was a semi off market because it wasn't on the broker's website it really wasn't anywhere the guy just kind of made a linkedin post and uh, we found it that way
2: How are you finding these tiny, small brokers to work with?
1: I'm trying to think how I found that one in particular. Really, we're finding all the properties that have sold. So we're going to tax records, we're going to LoopNet, we're going to a few other places, and we're going to backtrack who sold that property. So LoopNet will tell you, or excuse me, CoStar will tell you who the broker was involved with that transaction. So we'll backtrace it that way. We'll ask around, we'll through our network, see who people are working with and we'll find brokers that way. Right now, you know, I'm pretty sure I have every single broker's number in the market that we operate in. So if any deals coming to market or going on their website, I'll know about it. And I also bookmark all of the broker's websites. So I have a bookmark here of probably 35 broker websites that I go to at least once a week to see if they have new offerings available.
2: What markets are you buying in? You mentioned North Carolina, but where in North Carolina? And then are you in any other states?
1: Right now, strictly North Carolina, and we're staying in growth markets in North Carolina. So it has to have, over the last decade and the last year, it has to have positive population growth, has to have job growth, has to have employment growth as well, which is really job growth. Those markets are really going to be the Charlotte, Charlotte MSA. So we have two properties right around Charlotte. Moving up the I-85 corridor, you start to get in, go through Concord, you get into Greensboro, Winston-Salem. Then you start sailing into Raleigh-Durham, the research triangle, and then we go over to Greenville as well. Those are really those growth areas. So, you know, Charlotte MSA, Greensboro, Winston-Salem MSA, the Raleigh-Durham MSA, and then the, uh, which falling into the Raleigh-Durham MSA is Greenville as well. All growth markets. All markets that are around those larger MSAs that are feeling the ripple effect of growth. So maybe it's a, a Salisbury market that's a little bit smaller, but it's feeling the growth effect of the, that Charlotte to Greensboro effect.
2: Are you personally based in North Carolina?
1: My partner, he's in Charlotte. I'm in upstate central New York, so Syracuse, New York. I do everything from my computer except due diligence. You know, I find the properties, I build the broker relationships, I underwrite the property, I find the debt. If it looks good, send in the LOI. If the LOI gets accepted, or they, the broker says, we really like this LOI, that's when I queue up DJ, my partner, and say, Hey, DJ, go to this address. You're meeting with this broker. You're going to tour this asset. So essentially, I'm putting the ball up on the tee for him. Once he goes over to the asset, confirms it's what we thought it was, because as everyone knows, a deal can look great on paper, but doesn't mean it's going to look great when you actually get there. So he goes there to actually confirm it, tours the asset, Once that looks good, then again, I tee it up to DJ. He's going to hit it off the tee by doing the PSA, working with our attorneys, getting it negotiated. And once it's under contract, it's time for due diligence. That's when I hop on a flight with a one-day notice, fly down there. We do our due diligence on the property. We walk all the units. We go walk all the comps. We meet with vendors, the property manager. We really get everything under wraps. And then that's when I fly back home, start raising capital, and we close on the deal.
2: How did that partnership and location come about? Did you guys partner because you knew you wanted to invest in those areas in North Carolina, so you found a partner down there? Or did you find the partner first and then you decided to invest in those areas because he was down there?
1: Really popular question I get, kind of chicken and the egg, which one comes first? So DJ and I actually knew each other because he lived up in Syracuse. We went to church together. I'm actually younger than his son, and he was really good friends with my father. And we met through our church. He moved down to Charlotte with his wife about seven years ago for her job, and uh, he saw I was doing a bunch of real estate stuff. I know he was passively doing some real estate stuff. He wanted to go active, and you know we stayed in contact. and We said, you know, why don't we do this thing together? And so we sat down, kind of laid out the terms of how we wanted to do it, and to get to the market, we really took about twenty markets along the East Coast that was easy access to both of us, and we knew were strong markets. And we did research and we evaluated, evaluated them to see which one would make sense. And it so happened to be, we landed in Charlotte, which is right where he is. and It wasn't on purpose by any means. It just happened to be where the data fell. And he moved down there and his wife moved down there for... He, he transferred jobs, but she transferred jobs down there. And that's what a lot of people are doing. And that's how it ended up being a strong market. So it just ended up working out that the market was in his backyard and he's our boots on the
3: ground guy. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
0: The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV. Like an adventure-ready RAV4, available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander, With three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers, and with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places.
3: but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, taking forever to close the books. And getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, you should know three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their book in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. Business owners know the power and simplicity of using one tool for things such as scaling up their business, adopting new business models, and easily viewing real-time analytics on one interface. NetSuite offers the unprecedented ability to make all this possible. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist, designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free at netsuite.com mi. That's netsuite.com mi to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com mi. All right, back to the show.
2: How do you raise capital for your deals kind of from two perspectives? One, you're relatively young, so that's kind of one thing that may be working against you. And the second thing is, like you said, you only have two years of experience, which I mean, even lenders are a little bit kind of weary of that. Not to say that Mm -hmm. you don't do a great job, but just purely Mm -hmm. from an experienced numbers perspective, how are you making investors comfortable to invest with you?
1: Age is but a number. I started raising capital when I was 22 years old. I'm 24 now, and I've raised millions of dollars of capital from investors. You know, you hear it all the time, two things in real estate: you know, location, 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 not what we're talking about here, but the know, like and trust. I'm sure as a podcast host, you've heard it a million times. People need to know you, so you need to get your face out there. You need to tell everyone what you're doing. People need to trust you. You have to show somewhat of a track record. If you really don't have one, you still need to show how you've contributed to other people's track records trust. We already said that one. And then like, people need to enjoy you. People need to enjoy your presence. They need to enjoy talking to you. They're not going to invest with someone they don't like. If they don't like you, they're not even going to be talking to you. The no like and trust triangle, that's super important. But then adding value and showing yourself as an authoritative figure in the space. So I'm doing a few things for that. I've got the podcast, just like you do. I've got my podcast. Quick plug, Make Money Make Sense. You can find it out everywhere there. Been running that for a little over two years now. People are going to listen to that. They're going to listen to what I have to say, and they're either going to agree with it or not, or they're going to learn from it as well, and they're going to find value in that. I also have been hosting for three years a multi-family meetup monthly in my area. I do it in person. I also do it via virtual. So I have like a 360 camera in the room. And that way, for all of our out-of-state investors, they can be present. All of our local investors, they can be in the room. I'm building value with these investors I'm also putting together a great business plan with my partner. And then in comes that third individual that signs on our loans, uh, the KP or the key principal. He's also vetting all these deals, making sure the business plans make sense. He's not going to sign on a failing loan or a failing business plan. He's going to take my underwriting. He's going to make sure it makes sense. He's going to have his team look at it. He's going to evaluate it and give it his blessing essentially. So a lot of those factors help. And again, building value to others, bringing value to others. Sounding like you know what you talk about, even if you don't. But if you don't figure out what you're talking about and make it happen. So, you know, the first year of the business, my partner and I weren't doing any deals. We were figuring out how to do deals, what makes sense, what the vocab words mean, how to speak with brokers, how to operate properties, how to interview, you know, property managers, get that on the property and doing all this research. And now that we've done that, going full circle to our first thing we talked about how one real estate deal can change your life. We spoke about that in the beginning. That's just that. That first syndication deal proving the business model, proving what we're trying to do, did just that with the first one. So it showed our investors we can do it. It showed our investors we can give them great returns. It showed our investors in the world that we could close on a project, get the certain loan type, you know, flip a project, turn it around, make a property cash flow, and now we have repeat investors. We have investors that have invested with us on every single deal. And those investors are our biggest fans. They also bring us referrals as well. We have group chats with some of our investors who they just keep adding people that they think would want to invest with us in the group chat. And we get to talk to them. We have a great time. And they fight for positions in our deals where we have to tell them no, unfortunately, because we fill up. And you know, there's never hard feelings. They understand these things are uh, uh, very lucrative. They really, uh, they're really, great investments, even during you know, economic uncertainty like now they're still producing cash flow, And so these investors, you know, they see what's going on. And every time we close a deal or finish a raise or renovate a unit, I post it on social media and it gets people curious. I mean, people who I haven't talked to in 10 years, being I'm only 22, when I was literally 12 years ago, like teachers or parent friends or things like that, they see what I'm doing and they'll reach out and they're interested. I, you know, I just went to a family reunion last week with 60 family members who I haven't seen in literally a decade. And a few of them came up to me and was like, Hey, like, I see what you're doing in North Carolina. I'd love to get involved. You know, I'm looking for good investments like that. I see you're doing really well. And I laugh in the back of my head because it's like, this is how capital is raised. You know, people are seeing what you're doing. You're, you have to put everything out there. No one's going to know what you're doing if you don't put yourself out there and put your projects out there. And I'm very big on that. You know, we've got a large mailer list of almost 1,000 investors, not all that have invested with us, no way, but that have shown interest. And every time we're doing something, you know, I blast out an email. I put it on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. You just got to let people know what you're doing. And capital raising seems a lot harder than it is. And up front, it definitely is, but it, it gets easier where you know, our last raise we did in less than a week because it just got really easy.
2: Would you say most of your investors come from your meetup and your podcast, or are you finding them from another source? I know you just mentioned family as well, but that seems relatively recent. So prior to that, what, what do you think your main source of finding investors was?
1: Yeah. So it was definitely the meetup, the podcast, and uh, word of mouth. The meetup, there's individuals there who I never thought would even invest with me. And, you know, I see their name come through our investor portal and I just call them up. I'm like, hey, so and so, like, I didn't even know you were interested. They're like, yeah, I got some capital to throw around. I see what you're doing. I want to diversify it. I'll throw 50 or 100,000 with you. The meetup, the podcast are definitely important. People listen to that stuff. They really do. And they find their way to you. And um, again, referrals, like I was talking about, people will send us, you know, hey, I went to college with this buddy. We stayed in contact. He's looking for a place to put some capital, or hey, this is a coworker, or hey, my dad's looking to invest. Like referrals are a big part of keeping your capital line open.
2: We talked earlier about kind of chicken and egg with the legal and kind of setting up your funds Mm -hmm. and your structures. How about with capital? Do you raise the capital first, then go find the deal, or do you find the deal, then go raise the capital? (sighs)
1: So we're raising the capital before, but we're not physically taking the capital in. We're educating investors about what we're doing and what a potential deal looks like, or, hey, here's what our last deal looked like. Then you know we have some interest already. Then when we have that deal, we go out and go back to those investors and say, hey, remember that example I gave you? Or, hey, remember that last deal we had? This is very identical. You want to get on it? And they, they mostly do. There's not an exact answer. We're more like again teeing up the capital. So then, when we have the deal, you know, the capital is already on the tee, and we just knock it out of the park once the deal is ready to accept that investor capital. So you're
2: taking like soft commitments, basically.
1: Not even soft commitments. Really, it's just like word of mouth and a list we're making. We take those soft commitments once we have the deal. So you know, once we do due diligence, we know we want to do the deal. And then we announce it. We do a webinar. And after the webinar, people make their soft commitments. We kind of evaluate where our capital raises. And then after the legal documents are done, we open up the actual offering to accept funds. So those soft commitments or those reservations can turn their reservation into a full commitment.
2: Relatively recently, you started selling off some of your smaller buildings to buy apartments, which I found interesting when I learned that because I'm going through the exact same transition myself right now. I'm actually starting to sell off some of my single-family homes to buy apartments. Why did you decide to make this transition? Why not just keep the smaller properties while also buying apartments?
1: The small stuff is a headache to manage. It's really tough, it's really difficult. And you know, if you have 20 single families, you have 20 roofs. You have 20 structural foundations, you have 20 locations, 20 tax bills, you know, versus I can put 20 units under one roof, under one tax bill, you know, under one on one foundation. It just made more sense. And I was starting to buy up, you know, uh, one street in my area, and I was going to transform it. And I was just kind of doing the math, and I was like, "Geez, I got to do a lot of transactions. I got to find a lot of deals. I got to, you know." But with multifamily, you're doing the same amount of work. You're just adding zeros to all the numbers. I know it. it you know, it sounds like well, managing a hundred units is much more difficult than managing two units. Well, it is and it isn't because you have a management company doing it, so you're not doing that part. You're doing one equity raise, one closing, you know, one set of legal documents, one report. I saw how long it was going to take to scale the small single family duplex model. And it's really tough to raise capital for one little deal. Like you have to get like one investor on each deal. You have to, you know, piecemeal it. And it's a lot harder. And I just said, I don't want to do this. I want to do something bigger that you can scale with faster. And that's the one thing I would tell myself, my younger self, is go bigger faster. It's easier. It really is. And it was a headache to manage the smaller stuff because it was all scattered. I had you know, a duplex over here, a duplex over there, you know a few on a street here. And uh, I just said, I don't even want to keep these anymore either. I want to roll that capital into the bigger stuff. So you said, you know, why not just keep it and cash flow it? Why sell it? Because I want to roll that capital into the bigger stuff. And I also switched markets too. I went from my local Syracuse market, where everything was 100 years old, had older construction, uh, lead, asbestos, galvanized plumbing, Lath and plaster, you know, just older structure, older construction, and worse demographics too. To a market that has growth, you know, net migration from the Northeast to the Southeast. The oldest building we own is I think 1982, and we won't do anything older than 1980s because again, we're not dealing with that lead, asbestos, lath and plaster, galvanized, aluminum wiring, all that good stuff. It's newer construction. It's easier to maintain. The buildings are newer. Again, going back to that construction. We're in growth areas, we have a uh, better tenant landlord law, so we have more control over our properties in North Carolina than New York. You basically don't even own the property, even though you own the property in New York. You know, your tenant has all the rights. That was another factor why I sold that small stuff in that market and moved to the bigger stuff in my market. And you know, I'm a broker in upstate New York, I led my entire area for small multifamily sales last year and doing so again this year. And people always say, Well, you know, you have the relationships, you have the deal flow. Why not just buy here? We just spoke about, or I just said, you know, the construction, the age of construction, the tenant landlord laws. And also, it's really tough to find stuff here that's newer, that's a decent size. Everything's really small because it's such a, an older region. These, all these larger multifamily assets weren't really made for this region. You're going to find duplex, triplex, and then maybe a 500 unit apartment complex that's owned by an institutional seller. You're not going to find a 16 or 20 unit building here, really, versus down south. I'm tripping over them. <laughs> you know, it's very different.
2: I live in New Hampshire, and so New York is just right, not very far from me. It's right over a little bit, and it's such a big state that I often find myself like kind of peeking there. But then I remind myself, no, don't invest there. The landlord tenant laws are just horrible. <laughs> like everything, like you said, it's it's kind of like our East Coast California in a sense from a real estate investing perspective. While you were doing some of those smaller deals and self managing. And I want to talk about this real quick because I think it relates to the position that a lot of our listeners are in. They self manage, they have smaller deals. One of the things you would do is you would hold open houses for potential tenants rather than having one on one
1: showings. Why did you think this strategy was best? When I was self managing and I started leasing units, my units, I would make appointments with each of the tenants to see the unit. And most of the time, the tenant wouldn't even show up or the prospective tenant. So I was wasting my time. I was spending too many hours at the property. I was getting frustrated. So I was also an agent. And I was like, well, we don't just do one-off showings. We do. But we also do open houses on listings. So why can't we do that with an apartment? So I would get you know, 100 inquiries on this apartment. I would text everyone the same exact thing. Here's our requirements to rent this apartment. If you qualify and you want to see it, you can come at Monday at 5pm. I'm going to be there from 5pm to 6pm. Come check it out. And what this would do is this would allow me to, instead of doing 10 or 15 showings over 10 to 15 hours or seven to 15 hours, depending on if you do a half hour, or hour showing or whatever, you're now blocking off one hour of time. It's your, you leave the door open. You've got applications on hand. You're letting people come in. If people don't want to show up. I don't care. I'm talking with other people. And you're also uh, causing this urgency, this sense of urgency where people come in, they see other people come in and they're like, oh man, there's lots of interest. If I want this place. I got to get in it now. And other people that will come in that don't qualify necessarily will, and they know they don't, they'll come in and they'll be like, well, geez, I don't qualify. There's 10 other groups here looking at this property. What are the odds that he picks me over these guys? And it gets rid of kind of like the bad tenants as well. It weeds them out. It's kind of like natural selection of tenants, (laughs) if you would. And uh, this is great because, again, you're not wasting my time, you're causing urgency. And uh, you're weeding out some of the badder tenants. And this just makes it a lot easier to rent out a unit. And I find this uh, method to work really well. And I suggest your listeners try it out.
2: You recently tweeted something that I resonate with so much and that has been driving me crazy lately since I got into buying apartment buildings. In your tweet, you said, a value add real estate deal means I'm going to buy something for 5 million and add value to it making it worth $7.5 once the value add portion takes place. It does not mean I'm going to pay $7.5 for something that's worth $5 million today and then do all the hard work that the seller is not willing to do and take on added risk with hopes it'll be worth more than what I paid. Not how the whole value add play works. I've come across this numerous times just in the last couple months, and each time it drives me crazy. And it partially blows my mind that it works for some sellers. Expand on this idea and explain what's going on a bit more for those listening who aren't
1: familiar. You know, that tweet, I I tweet out of frustration a lot. You couldn't tell, you know, out of like stuff that's going on. And so those are real world experiences where brokers and sellers are selling their property based on pro forma. So where it potentially could be, not where it is. And that defeats the whole purpose of the value add aspect of a property. You're supposed to buy it at what its true value is, add the value to it, And then capitalize on that value that you've made. But what's the problem is a lot of people are having trouble finding deals. So therefore, they're buying on what the value should be with hopes that they can get it there and get it to cash flow once it gets there. And the problem is, is what happens when you can't get it there? You know, what happens when you buy it at the 7.5 million and it's only worth six and a half million? You know, you're a million short of where the value needs to be, which comes back to that bridge debt with how are you supposed to refinance the perm debt if the value's not there? So we're going to buy at what the value truly is now. So these people that are buying at non-existing cap rates or 3% cap rates, those deals don't work because they're based on pro forma. Like, yeah, you buy at a 3 cap here, but you you get it up to this value and you can sell it at a 4 cap. Well, newsflash, I buy the 3 cap, I get it to that value, and then I sell at the 4 cap. It's basically the same value because you're increasing the cap rate, which again, goes back to cap rates come up, the price goes down, All that value you just put into it, you're losing back on the cap rate. Or maybe you're losing because interest rates are going up. So we're not buying something based on pro forma. We're going to buy it on where the value currently is in the asset and where we know we can build the value to get up to that higher value that maybe the broker wanted, but we weren't willing to pay for. I tell people to be very wary of where they're buying and how they're buying and especially a duplex too. If it's worth 150 on pro forma where you can get rents, well, Buy it on where rents are because if the seller can't get the rents there, either they're not trying, which is great, that's fine, or they couldn't do it and they're trying to sell you on what the business plan could have, would have, should have been.
2: That drives me crazy. In the only exception that I, I'll say is if, let's say, they have it listed, it's really at today's kind of metrics, it's worth a million and they want to sell it for 1.2 but I think I could get it to 1.8, then I'd be okay with maybe paying 1.2, 1.3, a little bit higher than really what it's worth today, just because I know there's such a spread. But if they're trying to sell it for 1.8, which is what I think I could get it to, then that kind of stuff just irks me when I see that in a listing.
1: Most definitely. I'm right there with you. I totally get it. And hence why I had that tweet out of frustration.
2: It's funny. It seems to be the same brokers or the same firms over and over again. Yeah. They're getting away with murder. Dante, as we wrap up the show, I want to give you a chance to tell the audience where the best place is to connect with you.
1: Robert, this has been really awesome. Really appreciate you having me on the show. You have some phenomenal questions and I hope I added a lot of value to your listeners. If you're looking to learn more about me or looking to chat with me or even invest with us, you can visit our website at victorycapgroup.com. So that's victorycapgroup.com. Or you can shoot me an email directly. I promise you I'll see it. At dante at victorycapgroup.com. You can follow me on Instagram at Dante Belmonte or LinkedIn. And then my Twitter, which is my anonymous account, we call it. But, you know, I just, it's at multifamilymad or multifamilymadness. And uh, that account is not about me at all. It's about, you know, the business, about multifamily. And I didn't make it about myself. So it could be about the business. You know, the focus isn't on me. So they call it an anonymous account because you don't know who's behind it. But if you DM me, I'll tell you. I'll tell you exactly who's running it. And that's how, you know, Robert, you and I met. Again, that's at multifamily madness on Twitter. So that's where we met.
2: I'll be sure to put a link to all of Dante's resources below in the show notes for anybody that's interested in, in connecting with him, asking him any questions you may have, or, or just learning more. Dante, thanks so much again for joining me. I really appreciate it.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me on.
2: All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week.